Welcome to Indefinable Magic, a podcast that could very well be pointless, but it's better than doing the washing up. And here I am, Toby Haydock, who writes and performs this, but doesn't do the washing up, if I can possibly help it. This week's episode, nothing serious, nothing political. voting changed anything, they'd abolish it. It's been interesting to witness the recent arguments about whether Doctor Who should be political or not, and indeed, whether it always has been. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to open that can of worms, nor will I throw that can at a hornet's nest in order to disturb it, and will therefore neither satisfy nor offend those of you whose preferences for metaphors are either wiggly or venomous. Instead, I thought it would be very interesting to look at some of the people who've been involved with Doctor Who, who have stuck their heads above the parapet to stand up for what they believe in. As you'll see, they're a mixed bunch, from left to right, with much in between, and I am here not to judge, merely to represent, because representation without vaporisation is what good democracy is all about. And the most famous political wrangler in the Hooniverse is surely the man who betrayed the Doctor himself in order to secure a golden age that he envisaged for the world, Captain Mike Yates. Yates went from, one presumes, ex-public schoolboy office material to hippie dropout, but that's fiction, of course. And actually, actor Richard Franklin's political journey in real life has been as interesting as that of his fictional counterpart. He once told me that he had started off as a typical liberal lovey, espousing the sort of politics, fiscally left-leaning, socially extremely liberal, you'd expect from a well-meaning member of the theatrical profession. In the UK, by the 1990s, if you considered yourself neither left-wing enough to vote Labour, with its image of unions and militancy, or if the right-wing nature of the Conservatives, who were socially far less liberal than they are today, and still very much espousing the small-state idea when it came to personal financial responsibility... Then the Liberal Democrats were a very useful party to associate with, and you even had a chance of winning a few seats, and so gaining some influence in Parliament. And so, in 1992, Richard Franklin stood for the Lib Dems. He didn't stand much of a chance, as the sitting Labour MP, David Blunkett, was a powerhouse who eventually served as Education and Employment Secretary during Tony Blair's years in government. Blunkett had won Sheffield Brightside, a safe Labour seat, in 1987. And so when Franklin stood up against him in 1992, he didn't have much chance of victory. But he came third, with 5,273 votes, a 12% share, both of which are respectable for a third party. And indeed, he came less than 2,000 votes behind the Tory challenger. And way ahead of the other candidate, for the International Communist Party, who came in fourth, with just 150 votes. The bad news for Franklin, though, was that he was the only candidate in that battle whose party's share of the vote dropped, in his case by 1.9%, from the previous election. Franklin had long harboured a resistance to Europe, though, before the word Brexit had even been coined, and so his next grab for power was standing for UKIP forerunner 
the Referendum Party. When Euroscepticism was looked at by most of the UK population with either disdain or alarm, but certainly with little chance of success. The Referendum Party was founded by Sir James Goldsmith, who himself had something of the crazy Doctor Who villain about him. A rich man with ferocious zeal, a bonkers idea, and the eyes of Professor Zaroff, and enough resources to put his plans into action. So just five years after being a lovely, uncontroversial liberal, Richard Franklin had gone into his cellar, done some chanting, and evoked a powerful maverick to help him to fulfil his ambitions. And he stood for the referendum party in Hackney South and Shoreditch in 1997. It may come as a surprise to younger folk currently mired in the vehement discourse between both sides when it comes to the issue of European separation, and who witnessed the vote which revealed a paper-thin gap that actually turned out to be 51% to 49% on behalf of the anti-Europeans, that in 1997, when Goldfinger, sorry, Goldsmith, was pointing his laser at the continent, the suggestion we'd ever leave the European Union was less believable than invasion of the dinosaurs model Tyrannosaurus Rex. But timing is everything, and in 1997, no one was quite ready for Captain Mike Yates's Goldsmith age, and he came fifth with just 613 votes. As this was a new venture, there was no swing either way, so his 1.8% of the vote gives no indication of whether his views were coming in or out of vogue. But he did beat the British National Party, the Communist Party, the National Law Party and the Workers' Revolutionary Party, so that's a victory of sorts. Hackney South and Shoreditch was a safe Labour seat though, and Brian Sedgmore didn't just win by over 15,000 votes over his next rival, the Liberal Democrat Martin Panting, see Richard, he'd have come second if you'd stuck with them, but he also increased his party share by 6%. Goldsmith died in 1997, and the Referendum Party died with him. But the United Kingdom Independence Party, which had been born in 1993, bagged the vacuum left by Goldsmith, and Captain Yates got on their spaceship in time to represent them in the 2001 general election, standing in the constituency of Hove. He came in sixth, behind the three main parties, the Greens and the Socialist Alliance. But his 358 votes put him ahead of the Liberal candidate, the Free Party and an Independent. And, good news for Richard, he added 0.5% to the party's vote. At the following election in 2005, the news was even better for UKIP. They added another 0.4% to their showing, but although Richard did stand at this election, and in Hove again, he wasn't this time representing that party. His ideological alignment with UKIP had hit a bump, and so he had instead formed his own party, the Silent Majority, and so presumably mimed his way through the hustings and canvassing, which meant that he was defeated by his former comrades and also by the Respect Party and an independent to come eighth overall, meaning that the majority part of his party's name now, strictly speaking, breached the Trades Descriptions Act. With his 78 votes, he did, however, beat another independent candidate who managed only 51. But overall, silence must fall. And they did. 
Sometime between then and 2015, Richard Franklin established the 3050 Coalition, a party that campaigned to have 12 extra regional seats in Parliament in order to slacken the stranglehold of the major parties. Richard himself didn't stand for election. The coalition's sole candidate was in Bethnal Green and Bow, and he, as Richard had in 2001, managed to accrue just 78 votes, placing him 10th out of 11, 20 votes ahead of the Red Flag Anti-Corruption Party. The 3050 coalition no longer has a website, so one must assume that it too no longer exists and has been deaccessioned and junked. Perhaps one day it will turn up in a foreign archive or at a car boot sale, but for now one can only wonder what riches it contained, as evidence is scarce. But look, whatever you think of Captain Yates's fairly scattershot navigation through the political world, in an arena where lots of actors happily wax lyrical about the activities of the day, you have to admire anyone who is prepared to put their money where their mouth is. Even if, as in the case of some politico-thespians I shall be introducing you to, their mouth is in cloud cuckoo land. Because Richard Franklin is not the only member of the Doctor Who cast from the Pertwee era to engage in politics. Appropriate, I suppose, for the reign of producer Barry Letts, whose commitment to environmental and left-of-centre concerns is a matter of record. As is, it has to be said for balance, his script editor Terence Dix's poo-pooing of any idea that the Doctor Who team during Letts's tenure were trying to engage in politics at all, and that any allegories were entirely coincidental. They unconsciously reflected things in the air at the time, claimed Dix, but heaven help them if they were trying to make a point. Dix's friend, Malcolm Hulk, whose work is so associated with the Pertwee era, had definitely been a member of the Communist Party at the end of the war, having met a lot of Russian POWs, but by the time he came to write for Doctor Who, he was no longer on their books. He was, however, an active advocate for union membership, and his left-wingery is fairly easy to discern in his writings for the show, especially in Colony in Space, in which the shaggy-haired farmers of Uxarius are treated very badly by the capitalist mining company IMC, some of whom conspire to have hair even worse than that sported by the colonists, despite having access to, presumably, capitalist scissors. One of the colonists is killed early on by an ersatz reptile that turns out to be a front for a mining robot, and interestingly, an evil conglomerate disguising itself as a lizard is in an amusingly canny reversal of what some conspiracy theorists today, including David Icke, so familiar to UK viewers as a football journalist often seen on TV just before Doctor Who came on, would have you think, as they believe that many high-ranking politicians are actually lizards in disguise. But look, the victim of the pretend lizard, Leeson, is played by David Webb. Webb trained at RADA and did rep in York and Bromley and started appearing on TV from the late 1950s. And in 1971, yes, he pops up in Doctor Who for one episode. He's the first colonist to encounter Joe and the Third Doctor and is later killed in his dome alongside his wife, Jane. It's a small but significant part, and Webb plays it well. But aside from his acting, Webb was also an anti-censorship campaigner. In April 1976, he set up the anti-censorship pressure group, the National Campaign for the Repeal of the 1959 Obscene Publications Act. This was later 
amended to the National Campaign for the Reform of the Obscene Publications Act, Necropa. The following year, he said that Parliament has done absolutely nothing to bring the censorship laws up to date and in line with modern 20th century thinking. In fact, in many areas, we appear to be returning to the viciously restrictive standards of the past. We already have, for example, far more censorship than the USA or any other country in Western Europe, with the exception of Spain and the Republic of Ireland. These restrictions on individual liberty are perpetuated largely by the ridiculous and unjust Obscene Publications Acts of 1959 and 1964. After Webb's words were published in The Stage, in response and providing a summation of the other side of the argument, a correspondent, one Dolores Clues, wrote... With reference to David Webb's letter, lamenting the amount of censorship to which we are subjected, may I say that I would love the freedom of being able to go to any theatre in or out of London and know I will not be subjected to a barrage of four-letter words, strip-offs and simulated sex acts. I fear this is a freedom which I am unlikely ever to attain. Webb's response to this was testy. Out of a total of 45 central London theatres, only 18 are currently presenting performances containing four-letter words, strip-offs or simulated sex acts, he wrote, saying that Ms Clues does therefore have the freedom to choose from any of the remaining 27 shows, just as she also has the choice of 41 non-X film programmes out of a total of 71 central London cinemas. I and the supporters of the National Campaign for the Repeal of the Obscene Publications Acts, on the other hand, are denied our freedom by being prevented from seeing, for example, films like Deep Throat or Salo, The 120 Days of Sodom, by the existence of our archaic censorship laws. We could, I suppose, always take a trip to the continent or to the USA, where they are adult enough to have dispensed with such ridiculous restrictions. But it would be a somewhat expensive night out, and would do nothing to help this country's balance of payments deficit. Miss Clue's muddled thinking is typical of the pro-censorship lobby who wish to force their opinions on everyone else. It probably hasn't occurred to her either that the reason why sex shows and X-films proliferate is because of their popularity with a vast, paying public. Well, you can't say he wasn't committed, and thanks to him, the film Deep Throat has finally been mentioned in a Doctor Who podcast. Webb hustled at meetings of the Actors' Union Equity, engaging his arguments against pro-censorship campaigners like Mary Whitehouse. In 1981, Whitehouse, earlier a thorn in the side of Doctor Who producer Philip Hinchcliffe, whom she famously insinuated was a bit sniff-dumb, later, in the documentary 30 Years in the TARDIS, objected to Howard Brenton's play The Romans in Britain, which had on-stage nudity and simulated homosexual rape. Whitehouse tried to take the director, Michael Bogdanov, to court. Webb wittily engaged in some apposite rhetoric when addressing his union. Friends, Romans and fellow members, I come to bury Whitehouse, not to praise her, he proclaimed, misquoting Shakespeare's Mark Antony from Julius Caesar, and doubtless adding himself to the Hinchcliffe household's Christmas card list in the process. Webb believed that there were certain groups in the UK hell-bent on forcing their beliefs on everyone, and that the union should totally oppose censorship in the arts. 
a director of integrity and repute is being branded with the stigma of criminality by this vindictive bigot, said Webb, probably causing Robert Holmes to punch the air if he was listening at home. If it is contempt of court to say this, then so be it. Any court which allows such an action to go ahead deserves contempt. Elsewhere, Webb had described Whitehouse as a very vexatious woman who goes sniffing around looking for people she can prosecute. She should be given a taste of her own medicine. People may sometimes laugh at her methods, but she does have an insidious effect on attitudes, particularly on the government. After addressing equity, Webb was supported by the union's president, Theodore Maxtable, off of Evil of the Daleks, but Webb refused to heed the union's advice not to seek further publicity, as this could be detrimental to Bogdanov, it said, and he organised a demonstration outside the court. He told the press he wanted White House herself prosecuted for wasting police time when she pressed them to investigate the production, especially as the play she was so vigorously condemning was one which she, and you'll never believe this, hadn't actually seen. Webb argued that White House's reaction could set a dangerous precedent. If she secured the obscenity action, it would open the door for police to be summoned by anyone offended by a play anywhere in the land. Christian Mother Whitehouse, lest we forget, was by her own and many standards an honourable woman. The well-meaning tablers of Scotland's recently drafted anti-hate crime law might soon learn that Webb could have been onto something. But as we are a species who seems hell-bent in not learning from history, perhaps we shouldn't be surprised. Webb also warned the Conservative government not to restrict programme makers and urged Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher not to introduce laws limiting the portrayal of sex and violence on television. He took it further, standing against Thatcher herself in the 1983 general election in her Finchley constituency. Webb, with crusading zeal, rigorously argued for adults to be treated as such, arguing that individuals should be able to absorb whatever material they like as long as they are consenting adults and that no coercion is involved. For him, sexually explicit material should be freely available, and failure to enshrine this God-given right was, he felt, a hypocritical stance from Thatcher's Conservatives, who claimed to be about individual freedom. If Mrs Thatcher gets back into power, with her dedication to Victorian values, we shall soon be covering up the piano legs once again, he warned. I mean, I'm no prude, but whilst I applaud Webb standing up with vigorous tumescence for his beliefs, I do think that there's some ground to be covered betwixt uncovered mahogany and, well, <coughs> uncovered mahogany. The hard wood of a piano leg is not quite the same as the hard wood prevalent in films on the saucier end of the spectrum. Or maybe I am a prude. Anyway, when Thatcher won her seat with 19,616 votes, almost double that accrued by the Labour runner-up, Webb found himself languishing near the bottom, put your own joke there, with just 28 votes, 200 or so behind cherished anarchist mainstay at UK election time, screaming Lord Such of the monster-raving loony party. But, at least, Webb was not last, as he beat two perhaps even more arcane rivals. The Party of Associates and Licensees got 27 votes, and another party emphasising the controversial sinking of an Argentinian ship during the Falklands War, the Belgrano Blood Hunger Party, 
who got 14. When Thatcher made her acceptance speech, Webb unfurled a banner with the legend No Censorship printed on it and was quickly bundled off stage by officials. Though he could at least take solace in the fact that he was presumably now armed with the knowledge that there were 28 people in Finchley with whom he could swap mucky videos. NCROPA, or Necropa, which is something of a mouthful, presumably something its members were not unfamiliar with, continued its bullish campaign into the 1980s, and Webb was also a member of the Campaign Against Censorship, CAC. By the late 1990s, Necropa, largely self-run and self-funded by Webb, had effectively ceased business. Webb was a secular humanist, and after he died at Trinity Hospice Clapham and was cremated at Mortlake Crematorium on the 17th of July 2012, Necropa was formally merged with the CAC CAC on December the 14th. Perhaps he'd have been more successful with a catchier acronym than Necropa. Grown-ups all watch porn, for example, would have given him GORP. But still, he seems like a character and the political landscape is poorer without such people. And as someone who has watched The Mutants several times, I can hardly criticise a man who expended his energy wanting to distribute awful quality videos of bad actors making a fist of things to terrible music. Another 70s figure, embroiled in a sensitive area which still manages to vex people, divide friends and dominate the national conversation, but is far less fun than sex, was Terence Denville. Denville, whose only on-screen credit on Doctor Who was as a Cyberman in The Invasion, also cropped up uncredited in several stories, from The Faceless Ones to The Monster of Peladon as an ice warrior, including Carnival of Monsters as the Pertwee-era's lone cyber representative looming into camera on Vorg's miniscope. However, in a profession which has a reputation for left-wing liberalism, Denville was something of a maverick, though his views, whilst sanitised and not over-detailed here, nonetheless come with a trigger warning. Denville, by all accounts an amiable man and jolly company member, had joined the National Front, a far-right party founded by A.K. Chesterton, formerly of the British Union of Fascists and nothing to do with Ian, in 1970, and was a devoted supporter of the British nationalist cause. Or, to put it in a less mealy-mouthed fashion, he was a horrible racist. Denville was from a family of British actors with political connections. His best-known relative, Sir Alfred Denville, a very successful actor-manager, was a Conservative Member of Parliament for Newcastle-upon-Tyne Central for 14 years in the 30s and 40s. A hefty inheritance from Sir Alfred meant that Terence Denville was a man of independent means. Arguably, a better use of Alfred's money was the setting up of the actor's retirement home, Denville Hall. Terence, by the way, was, although related to the clan, actually Terry Faulkner and added the Denville as a condition of Alfred's bequest. Terence Denville's parents were actor-managers and he learnt his trade with them in Jersey, in the Channel Islands. He served his two years national service in the Intelligence Corps, firstly at training camp near Mayfield in East Sussex and then later in Germany. After stints in theatre, he made his way into TV, but often in walk-on roles. Whilst at the BBC, he would leave copies of National Front promotional material around TV Centre's huge club and canteen and then observe who would pick up these items and how they reacted. 
Some recipients, he claimed, would explode in fury, but others would look around furtively, then tuck the flyer into their pocket or handbag. His was the hate, though, that dare not speak its name, and I've encountered many actors who worked with Denville who knew nothing of his views. Denville stood for Parliament first in a by-election in 1976 at Carl Charlton, an outer suburb in south-west London. He obtained 1,851 votes, 4.61%, far higher than expected, and his fourth place, behind Tory, Labour and Liberal candidates, put him ahead of the other fringe parties standing. Later that year, however, he was trounced in a Twickenham Council by-election, accruing just 57 votes. At the general election in 1979, he was back at Carl Charlton again, but mustered just 919 votes, this time without competition from minor parties. He was fourth of four. Back in Twickenham in 1983 for the general election, he came fifth out of six, losing out to the three main parties and the Ecology Party and receiving just 234 votes. In 1986, Denville became embroiled in a war of words with some protesting students at a National Front rally which was complaining against the National Front not being able to use Norton Town Hall for a meeting. Amidst all this election campaigning, he kept up with the routine work at his local Kingston and Richmond National Front branch. He was a member of its committee and attended all of its meetings as well as the monthly general members meeting. He frequently joined branch activists with weekly leafleting. Who knows, perhaps he was even a member of the local white supremacist football team, but I haven't been able to find that out. Denville wasn't the only person lurking in the background of Doctor Who with, shall we say, unconventional beliefs. Clenching his fist and giving good, high-status person vexed by science fiction tomfoolery acting in Time Flight is the actor Brian McDermott, a sheared, the testy head honcho of Heathrow Airport, standing in a cupboard looking over the shoulder of a radar operator or getting peeved with the cheery bonhomie of his Showbiz 11 Concorde crew. It seems, though, that McDermott was, in real life, a man often at the end of his tether with what he saw as bureaucracy or government meddling and was, it's fair to say, something of an eccentric. When not being given character parts on TV, he did one-man shows, one in which he played Adolf Hitler in drag, another in which he was Saddam Hussein. As I said, eccentric. But with eccentricity comes strange brilliance, and the world of entertainment benefited from Brian McDermott's crusading lunacy. He founded the Bush Theatre, a fringe venue which was a linchpin of innovation and productivity, mixing new writing with unnecessary nudity, batty polemic, and on one occasion, live rats. He was also a speaker at Hyde Park Corner, yelling his beliefs at anyone who would stop and listen, and indeed, at many who wouldn't. He was known as the Godfather of the Fringe, meaning the Fringe Theatre, although when he was campaigning politically, his party of choice, UKIP, the United Kingdom Independence Party, was very much considered on the fringe of politics, as Brexit, something McDermott would never live to see, was over 15 years away. Like the Nazi dictator he liked to play on stage, politically, McDermott's lot were considered a bit of a joke at first, but ended up winning through in the end. I am not, by the way, comparing UKIP to Nazis, but rather trying to illustrate exactly how far in the nether sphere those who craved independence from Europe were 
just 30 years ago. In 1988, he stood for a self-founded party with an exclamation mark in its name. Free trade liberal Europe out! Exclamation mark. But even an emphatic name like that failed to get him more than 31 votes, which was a tally also achieved by the anti-left-wing fascist party. They both, however, looked down on such bespoke movements as the anti-yuppie party, 24 votes, very much an 80s-sounding lot, and the Peace Stop ITN Manipulation Party with 20. The king of the silly parties, the aforementioned Screaming Lord Such, a much-loved figure who regularly stood for the monster-raving loony party in the honourable tradition of ensuring even national elections had a soupçon of frivolity, also stood in this by-election and showed how it was done, towering above pretenders like McDermott with 61 votes. The Conservatives won with 9,829 votes, only 815 more than their Labour rival, demonstrating that fringe candidates shaking up wayward voters can potentially upset a result and should be dismissed at your peril. McDermott, as Thomas McDermott, by the way, Brian was his middle name, stood for election against another actor, Glenda Jackson, in Hampstead and Highgate in 2001, coming sixth out of nine with 316 votes. Jackson got over 16,000. Whilst canvassing, he got attention for wearing the swastika and suspenders combo, which was his garb for his aforementioned one-man show, Adolf Hitler Mein Kampf, which was a political satire about a struggling actor who goes up for the part of Hitler in a production of Mel Brooks's comedy The Producers. McDermott had actually stood in elections since as early as 1972, on platforms attacking the EEC, the EC, the EU and later the Euro. He also launched a campaign to free the Isle of Wight from Brussels' control. Unsurprisingly then, he was vocal in acting matters with the Union equity and often tried to provoke legal battles with them over their closed shop policy. Something else he did not live to see going his way, but which ultimately happened. And he caused consternation at the Edinburgh Fringe when he staged a mass audition in Nazi garb to draw attention to his Adolf Hitler show. Many aspects of the world we live in now would probably be more to McDermott's taste, but he'd still probably end up in trouble, and he'd have probably been a demon on Twitter. But he went out with a bang on November the 5th, 2003, so didn't live to become embroiled in the worlds of social media. Time Flight, however, is a clear demonstration of BBC impartiality as it features another actor who certainly approaches life from the opposite end of the political spectrum, from McDermott. Namely, Michael Cashman, now Lord Cashman, whose later role as the gay character Colin in EastEnders thrust him into the spotlight whose beams cross both showbiz and politics. The role of Colin was, unlike that of First Officer Bilton in Time Flight, in the divisive climate of the 1980s, with a tabloid press who preached morals whilst rooting through celebrities' bins, never going to be a safe job. Anyone who questions why actors don't just shut up about politics and get on with their work may care to examine the case of Cashman, whose contribution to the show was broached by family newspaper The Sun with the headline East Benders, and bedevilled by untrue reports in the Sunday Mirror and the News of the World that he had had an HIV test, or AIDS scare, as it was delicately put as a generation of young men succumbed to a horrible and tragic disease. 
One afternoon, two teenagers knocked on Cashman's front door, asking for money. When he declined, they told him they'd been paid to ask by two men sitting in a car opposite Cashman's house. Tabloid hacks after photos for a cooked-up story. Why is this gay actor giving money to kids? Oh, yeah, homosexuality and paedophilia were pretty much interchangeable to these rancid organs in the 1980s. When the first gay kiss, a fairly innocuous one, a peck on the forehead, was aired by EastEnders at 7.30pm, Conservative MP Terry Dix, not our one. In fact, this one proves that for every good Terence Dix, then there must be an equal and opposite one in order to bring cosmic balance to the universe. And if you're not sure which is which, then the MP version most definitely had a dead rook on his head. Terry Dix called it perverted and used it as an excuse for the usual ban the BBC type of rhetoric. Listeners may be interested to note that among the journalists writing about the evil Dix's condemnation with glee was present-day guardian of public morality, Piers Morgan. The person who cast Cashman and conceived the character of Colin was EastEnders creator and director of Doctor Who's The Smugglers and The Underwater Menace, Julia Smith, who reportedly threatened to resign if the kiss was edited out of the show. Mary Whitehouse railed against it. The BBC was besieged by angry letters and phone calls, and on more than one occasion a brick was thrown through Cashman's window. Is it any wonder, then, that he eventually traded one theatre for another? He co-founded the lobby group Stonewall in an effort to achieve equality and to help to repeal the notorious Section 28 legislation, which was designed to prohibit what it called the intentional promotion of homosexuality by local authorities and schools. A rather muddle-headed idea based on the unusual premise that kids like the stuff they learn about in school. If anything, putting homosexuality on the curriculum, however one might do that, to be honest, as it's not something you can learn in lessons, unlike maths or French, but I'd be amused to see someone try, is more likely to put people off, as various writers of once popular books have learned. As soon as Cider with Rosie was put on the English syllabus, noted its author Laurie Lee ruefully, it went from being much loved to hugely resented. Cashman also campaigned for HIV and AIDS awareness, as the disease was decimating his community, one that, thanks to laws like Section 28, had to often exist in the fringes or the shadows. I will never forgive the Thatcher government, he once said, to bring in Section 28 against a group of people who should have been supported and nurtured and loved. To do that was viciousness beyond imagining. In 1999, he became the country's first openly gay Labour MEP and went on to be President of the European Parliament's Intergroup on Gay and Lesbian Issues, whilst also helping to convince Tony Blair's government to introduce same-sex civil partnerships. He was made a Labour peer in 2014 and has championed issues such as compulsory LGBT inclusive sex and relationships education. Recently, however, he resigned from the Labour Party after endorsing the pro-Remain Liberal Democrats. To demonstrate that Doctor Who is a broad church, let us point now to Rafe Arliss, Tuar in Planet of the Spiders, and, more memorably, the villainous kick-along in the 1979 Euston Films production of Quatermass. Tuar is, of course, a denizen of the famous Blue Planet, but politically, Mr Arliss 
is of an altogether different hue. A descendant of the famous Shakespearean actor George Arliss, Rafe stood for the Green Party in North Dorset in 2005. He lost to the Conservatives by over 20,000 votes, coming last. It was the first time that the Greens had stood in that constituency. At the following election, a different Green candidate achieved less than half of Arliss's tally. It's not easy being Green. Uh, the Green Party, by the way, used to be called the Ecology Party, mentioned earlier, but formally became the Green Party at the 1985 party conference in Dover, after another actor with Doctor Who connections suggested adding the colour green to the name in order to fall in line with other environmental parties in Europe. He presumably felt that it was his moral duty to save the planet, as the actor in question was John Abenerry, whose four Doctor Who roles include General Carrington in The Ambassadors of Death and Rankin the Swampy King in The Power of Kroll, in which he took his commitment to all things green, it has to be said, all the way. Uh, back to Rafe Arliss. Among his priorities was the opening of a new children's home in India. He got involved in the project after his son spent a month doing voluntary work there. I wanted to do something in India anyway because it's one of my favourite places, said Mr Arliss, and I went out in May and met the man who runs the children's home. With boys and girls being separated at the age of 10, a new home for boys became an urgent priority. Arliss ensured that building work could go ahead and fundraised for day-to-day -day running costs. Appropriately, for a metabilis farmer, he also campaigned against GM crops, which had proved to be more dangerous to some wildlife than their conventional equivalents, though he might just have been working on behalf of the eight legs on that one. And still, the Pertwee era is the parliamentary gift that keeps on giving. Vorg and Scherner in Carnival of Monsters may have promised nothing serious, nothing political, from their miniscope, but behind the glitter and pom-poms, Scherner was a budding politico. She, Cheryl Hall, was the Labour Party parliamentary candidate for Canterbury in the 1997 general election, coming second to Conservative Julian Brazier with 16,949 votes to his 20,913. Prior to her attempt, Labour had been in third place. The following election, current Labour Minister Emily Thornbury stood in the seat and did slightly better than Cheryl Hall, but still lost. Canterbury is now, though, at the time of recording, in Labour's hands, and its representative is Rosie Duffield MP. Miss Hall just didn't quite time her stand right. However, she also served as a member of Kent County Council, being voted councillor for Ramsgate South Kent in 1993, and being voted its first female leader in 1998. Other hooers, that sounds awful, we can't call them that, other hulumni peppering the political landscape include Timelash's stunned Princess Vina, Jean Ann Crowley, who was an unsuccessful candidate in the 1991 local elections for the Progressive Democrats in the Pembroke Ward of Dublin Corporation. Perhaps she simply wasn't convincing enough. You might also have seen Oliver Morgenstern of the Royal Hope Hospital, aka actor Ben Wrighton, canvassing in St Austell and Newquay in 2010 because his mother, Caroline Wrighton, stood as a Conservative candidate there. However, the power of who was not enough to propel her ahead of the Liberal Democrats. On the other side of the political divide, the same season's Mrs Moore, actress Helen Griffin, had stood as a candidate for the Respect Coalition 
in the 2004 elections for the European Parliament. She was an active campaigner for anti-war, anti-racist and feminist causes and in 2006 Griffin was arrested for daubing red paint on the National Museum of Wales as part of a protest against Israel's actions in Lebanon. David Webb, by the way, is not the only Doctor Who leeson to have tried his hand at politics. John Francis Christopher Ducker, who is known to us as John Leeson, who is also known to us as the voice of canine, stood as a candidate for the Liberal Democrats in the district of, well, Perivale, Ace's old stomping ground, in the local council elections for Ealing London Borough Council in both 2002 and 2010. But both times, unfortunately, the electorate failed to answer in the affirmative as far as our Mr Leeson was concerned. They never know the answer when it's important. None of them, as you've heard, made it, but despite these near misses, the Doctor's influence can be felt in Parliament today. Giles Watling, son of Professor Travers, Jack Watling, and brother of Victoria Waterfield herself, Deborah Watling, is the current MP for Clacton. He was elected in 2017 and in 2019 was elected again with an increased majority, having formerly served as a district councillor in the area for over 10 years. He is well versed in the community he represents and has had particular success lobbying for improvements in animal welfare. Whether this is a Trojan horse in order to sneak the Yeti into our communities is as yet unknown. The Doctor's son, Sandy Martin, child of stage Doctor Who Trevor Martin, was handed the seven keys to the British Parliament in 2017 when he was elected as MP to represent Ipswich. He became Shadow Minister for Recycling in 2018 but lost his seat at the 2019 election and in 2021 he was elected to serve as a Labour and Cooperative Councillor on Suffolk County Council. Talking of county councils, if you live in Winkfield in Cranbourne, then your representatives include Conservative Council member Tony Virgo, who prior to serving there, which he began to do in 2007, was a BBC TV director, whose first credit doing so was the Peter Davison two-parter The King's Demons, so presumably he'll be alert to any attempted takeover of his council by robot doppelgangers. Back in the day, presumably there were no raised voices when Arthur Newell served on Enfield Council. Before founding the Conservative Trade Unionists, Newell was a denizen of the sense sphere, playing evil Peter Glaze's sidekick, the fourth censorite. Newell, a very sweet man, according to his colleague and Nicholas Courtney biographer Michael McManus, held the unusual belief among his colleagues that trade unionism was not antithetic to Tory values. A moderate Conservative, he was also very pro-European two sashes which made him unrecognisable to some of his own kind. He was a thorn in the side of the then incumbent Enfield Tory MP, Michael Portillo. Across the way, by the way, in Surrey, you'd have found Aztec warrior Ixta, actor Ian Cullen, also serving as a Tory councillor, although it is not recorded if he promised regular eclipses in return for human sacrifices, but such things are not as popular as they once were, and certainly not in Surrey. So Doctor Who over the years has been a broad church, as you'd expect. 
The current desire by some of the louder voices on social media for our programme makers to reflect only our views seems to me tyrannical and totally contradictory. My politics should be fairly obvious. I'm a weedy member of the theatrical profession, so I'm a rather flannelly liberal, albeit a 47-year-old one, so that liberalism goes with a mistrust and rejection of any technology or idea, or even pop song, that came into being post about 1998. But I have friends who have differing views from me, and they challenge mine, and I welcome our conversations. And guess what? I also entertain the idea that I might be wrong. But crucially, I can distance the politics of the people who made it from the programme I love. Carnival of Monsters is still one of my favourite stories, despite the fact that it has a fascist Cyberman in it, and I'm presuming conservative friends of mine will still enjoy it, despite the miniscope being manipulated by a dealy-boppered lefty councillor. And at the end of the day, no matter what someone's politics, for democracy to work, people have to stand up for what they believe in and engage in the parliamentary process that drives our society. And as Doctor Who fans, we know the value in banging the drum for something that is hugely unpopular and viewed as a fringe eccentricity and hoping that one day the country will come to its senses and realise that actually we were right all the time. Having the courage of your convictions and being willing to put yourself on the line for them, that gets my vote, even though clearly some of the people I mentioned above never would. But, you know, it's no surprise that some actors from Doctor Who have crossed the floor into the other place. Acting is all about pretend. Pretending to be sure. Pretending to be confident. Sometimes even pretending to yourself. And with Doctor Who, you have to make the impossible sound real. Make the unbelievable seem true. And make some of the most ludicrous situations seem just possible. And if that doesn't prepare you for a life in politics, then nothing will. Thank you for voting for Indefinable Magic. I am your returning officer, Toby Haydock, who wrote and performed what you just heard. These podcasts would be impossible without a constituency of patrons who include Robin Bland, Luke Atkins, Peter Adamson, Will Brooks, Peter Burns, Richard Byatt, Alex Kafajoglu, Paul Carnahan, Andy Case, Richard Chalk, John Curley, Mark Dakin, Gary Gillett, Ian Gillespie, James Gould, Lisa C. Greco, Dave Hoskin, Jessica Jones, Andrew Jordan, Clive Lewis, Guy Lambert, James Lark, Gavin McLean, David Matthewman, John McClay, Russell McPhillips. The podcast artwork is by Dylan Patterson, and the music has been specially composed for this podcast by Dominic Glynn. If you too would like to become a patron, you can do so by going to patreon.com forward slash Toby There are several tiers available, but it's fairly egalitarian. Even the £3, the cheapest tier, gets you access to exclusive podcasts and advance releases, as well as some other little treats. £3 a month, the cheapest tier, and you can even get money knocked off that if you sign up for a year in one go, which activates the 10% reduction. 
Uh, if you can't or don't want to uh, sign up for a monthly commitment, and that's totally understandable, you can go to ko-fi.com forward slash Toby Haydoke whenever you think I look wan or hungry or needy or in need of a coffee, uh, and just do a one-off donation there. I know times are tight. I'm very, very grateful to everybody who just listens to this stuff. But what is free is spreading the word, is telling people and is going to your podcast provider and giving these releases five stars. That just really helps to improve their visibility and perhaps spread the word to people who might not have any indefinable magic in their lives and really, really need some. Or... You, you know, if there's somebody that you really want to irritate uh, by pouring these honeyed tones into their ears and all the rubbish that they talk, then point them in this direction. Uh, a few nice reviews and a few five-star ratings everywhere that you possibly can is really, really helpful. And if you like the cut of my jib, you can listen to me doing my day job, stand-up comedy. You can actually see it in the flesh these days. We're back live at Excess Malarkey Comedy Club in Manchester, 8pm every Tuesday. However, uh, lots of you don't live in Manchester, but we do do an online show, 8pm, the first Sunday of every month, on twitch.tv forward slash Excess Malarkey. Uh, I've also got a YouTube channel where we have uh, video versions of my Happy Times and Places podcast and also various comedy things that I've done and continue to do. And you can follow me on Twitter, at Toby Haydoke. And these podcasts have their own feed, at Haydoke Podcasts. There's also a Facebook fan page, although I can't believe I'm saying the word fan in relation to me, but some people seem to uh, like dropping into seeing what I'm up to, and that's a good place to do it. I'm going to stop talking now, because I can guarantee you nobody is listening anymore. Probably happened about half an hour ago, but you live in hope. I mean, this is the equivalent of now of just throwing stones at the moon, isn't it? But uh, I suppose it keeps me off the streets. It means I also haven't put those shelves up or fixed that broken bit of staircase. Uh, or uh, uh, I haven't actually done uh, emptied all the shopping, uh, the shopping bags that are in the front because I still have to wash down the shopping. My partner's got um, a compromised immune system, so I actually have to. I have to decontaminate uh, every piece of shopping that crosses the threshold of Haydoke Town. This is why I lock myself into a booth and do arcane Doctor Who facts. It's my only island away from the humdrum world of decontaminating blueberries, which I'm going to go back to now. Thanks for listening. Thanks for giving me a, an island of an island of joy where I can rhapsodize arcana. But uh, the rhapsody is stopping now.